Um, okay, I'm going to pour all the rest of this bottle into the glass right now. <laughs> I, the problem of doing this late in the evening is that there isn't much left in the bottle anyway. <laughs> Welcome to the sixth episode of the Coot Street Roundtable. The Roundtable is a monthly podcast from Coot Street Productions, where panelists James Bradley, Ian Mond, and myself, Jonathan Strahan, joined by special guests, discuss a new or recently released science fiction or fantasy book. With James busy house moving, we're joined this month by award-winning critic Gary K. Wolfe to discuss Levi Tidhar's Central Station. As always, remind you that there will be spoilers. For now, though, hello Gary and hello Ian. Hello. Good good evening from Chicago and good morning and good afternoon or whatever it is in Australia. <laughs> well, it, it'll be very close to now afternoon in Perth. It is an afternoon, to us. yes. Uh-huh. Yes, there you go. So, so you're, you're the odd man out, Gary. Sorry. Yes. I guess I am. <laughs> it's afternoon in Australia, and that's all you need to know. So, hello. It's been uh, it's been actually a while since our last episode, and a bit longer since you were with us, Gary. Back to discuss new science fiction, of which there that. seems to be a lot. And I'm I'm curious. I mean, I've already published my review of of Central Station, which I liked quite a bit, and. The reasons I liked it, I think, are interesting, and it has to do with science fiction that alludes to other science fiction. But I really want to hear uh, what 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 you think of it, particularly, Ian. Uh, it's interesting you say that because uh, I did I, I did read your review, and it's part of my problem is I'm not as conversant as I pretend I am in the field. So while I knew the word Chamblot had come from other sources, I I, I wouldn't have, I didn't know if it's top that it was uh, i think c or more is that right yeah right that's correct yeah and and i had no idea i knew like bill glimming or whatever that 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 weird name i knew that character had been in martian sands but i didn't know that bill actually originates from philip k dick that was a surprise to me right and that and there's then that's just uh two easter eggs in the book where there are many i mean yeah you know in terms of um themes and that it's clear, but in terms of um, naming and, that, and 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 just the way the way you know, like um, the the robotic priests and things like that, none of that necessarily ticked boxes for me in terms of uh, SF of the fifties, sixties, and seventies. It, 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 and again, it's just because I'm not as conserv- conversant as I would like to think I am. While I don't, think but you I don't... need to know what any of the actual Easter eggs are, Ian. I've never come across a book, and we'll get into more detail as we continue, that has been so much like, I've been trying to think of a metaphor for it. It's like a sponge cake and tiramisu soaking up the coffee, right? There is so yeah. much science fictional illusion everywhere through this, whether it's to mm-hmm. uh, whether it's to Clifford Simak, whether it's to Cordwain Smith, whether it's to Frank Herbert and June. I mean, there are sandworms and blue-eyed people in this book. You know, this thing is dripping with science with 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 pulp science fiction illusion and reference and and whatever else but i mean that's the air that tidhar as a writer plainly breathes and it's throughout the book but i don't think it's essential to understanding the book at all and this is one of the things i think is fascinating about what you might call the rhetoric of a lot of contemporary science fiction is that he does draw phrases from Cordwainer Smith, Outer Space is referred to as the up and out, and all the other allusions. Oh, and Samel's in there, and uh, some of Mother Hitton's little kittens. But by and large, it's seamlessly interwoven with his own stories. And uh, you're right, these are Easter eggs for science fiction readers. 
I don't know if somebody completely unfamiliar with science fiction would need to pick that up. It's like it's it, it's it's a, a canopy. It's it's a it's a freebie for for readers. You know, I don't I think Ada even... not. I don't think it's even that, uh, Gary. I mean, I mean, honestly, I mean, an Easter egg gives you a little something, right? I think this is just the. It's it's how he's taken bits of tile to make a mosaic, right? And yes. it doesn't. It's it's just the language he uses. And if you're a science fiction reader who's read all that stuff, then you get it. And if not, it's irrelevant. But before it's the nagging, it's the nagging feeling. And I want to say straight out, I love this book, but mm-hmm. it is the nagging feeling that you don't. Get, you're not getting all the jokes. That's that's what. And they're not necessarily jokes, but that you're not getting it all. I honestly, and you're right. The stories. The stories stand alone entirely without, uh, you know, whether you know who Bill Glimming is. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, they fully stand alone without that. Um, but Can is I that, you? just for me, and it's just because I always want to feel like I'm part of the, the loop, in the loop, mm-hmm. there's this naggy feeling, what have I missed here? Because I missed something. I know. Well, before we get any further, well, I'm, I'm going to say... I, go, go ahead, Gary. I was, just, I was just going to say that I think that's true to some extent. Jonathan and I may be sort of soaked in the same science fiction that that Lobby Tidder is, but there are a lot of references in this and in his other books, especially A Man Lies Dreaming, to obscure Israeli pulp writers, to little-known Yiddish writers from the turn of the century. None of us are going to pick up on that. Uh, and yet it doesn't bother me that I'm not picking up all the Israeli and, and Yiddish uh, sources that are behind the book. I'll tell you what the difference is just quickly, because I don't want to derail the conversation about this one point, but the difference is that I, I am a science fiction reader, and so I can tell when I'm not getting the joke with SF, it, whereas if it's a if it's Israeli pulp references or Yiddish references, which I don't know myself, um, I don't even I don't know what I don't know. Okay, but with the SF, I I can feel there's something going on. There's okay. something under the water. To ah. Lovey's credit, it doesn't derail the novel. At I mean, I've seen others do it where it's you know they are trying to be clever, clever and show off what they know. With Lovey, you're right, he's, I think both of you said, it's just the oxygen he breathes, and this is how he writes, and this is what it is. It's not about, oh, look, I've read Cordwana Smith once. It's not that at all. Can, can I say that I but actually... That doesn't change the no, no, fact no. that I just feel that nagging feeling. Okay, the nagging feeling for you and any other readers is misplaced. There are no in-jokes that, uh, uh, that turn on the references. There's no plot that turns on the references. This is a little bit like if you could imagine getting fixated on the print on on a piece of magazine that's been torn out and used to make a pa- paper mache puppet, right? Yeah, okay, he's, yeah. He's, he's used that stuff, but it's just there. It's not. It doesn't actually do anything further. You don't sit there and go, ah, I appreciate the greater reference. Because he's used sandworms, he's obviously making an allusion to June. No, he's just using it because that's the language that he uses. So per- perhaps the... You know, before we you know, before we go too much further, we could set this thing aside. I've never read anybody more immersed in the language of genre than Tidhar, really. Others who are, but no one who's more more so. And nor have I, at least in this book, come across anybody who, in a sense, does less with it deliberately. It's like he cannot help but express himself in these terms, in using re- ref- you know, references to Cordwain Smith, in using references to Frank Herbert or whatever else. Or to see all more, but it is mostly just what he happens to choose. I think probably the possible sole exception would be Chamblot, which I think has some greater resonance. Resonance, but you honestly don't need to have read any of the Seal Moore stories as worthwhile as they are. So, moving on from that, before we get in amongst, you know, 
Yeah. That's all fair, but in amongst all that, this is actually a fix-up novel, which in of itself is an ancient art form of the old genre, of old SF. I mean, who does fix-up novels these days? (laughs) I mean, there are examples, but... Yeah, you'd be surprised, but let let me do this thing where I'll... I'll, To to bring our our listeners up to speed, because we're getting into the conversation (laughs) before... Oh, the conversation! I like that. That's that's, that's the AI thing. Thank you. We'll slow it down just a little bit. I'll give you, the, uh, listeners, the description of the book at hand so that they've got some, some framework in case they're mad enough to listen to this discussion without actually having read the book, which they sh- really should have done. We're expecting it. But nonetheless, Levit Tidhar Central Station, which came out from Tachyon Publications in May of this year, is described this way by the publisher. A worldwide, a worldwide diaspora has left a quarter of a million people at the foot of a space station. Cultures collide in real life and virtual reality. The city is literally a weed, its growth left unchecked. Life is cheap and data is cheaper. When Boris Chong returns to Tel Aviv from Mars, much has changed. Boris's ex-lover is raising a strangely familiar child who can tap into the data stream of a mind with the touch of a finger. His cousin is infatuated with a Robotnik, a damaged cyborg soldier who might as well be begging, begging for parts. His father is terminally ill with a multi-generational mind plague, and a hunted data vampire has followed Boris to where she is forbidden to return. Rising above them is Central Station, the interplanetary hub between all things, the constantly shifting Tel Aviv, a powerful virtual arena, and the space colonies where humanity has gone to escape the ravages of poverty and war. Everything is connected by the others, powerful alien entities who, through the conversation, a shifting, flowing stream of consciousness, are just the beginning of, of irrevocable change. At Central Station, humans and machines continue to adapt, thrive, and even evolve. And can I just stop and say, I've never read that before. That's bullshit. That is the worst back cover <laughs> I've read in years. You know why? It's, it's got all kinds of factual errors in it. I mean, the others aren't powerful alien entities. They're Earth, uh, Earth-derived yeah, yeah, AIs. Yeah, uh, the the hunted data vampire, the Chamblot, uh, Car- 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 Carmel, Carmel is not uh, returning somewhere she was forbidden to return because she'd never been there. Um, yeah, and so on. And so, but nonetheless, well, she's forbidden to be there. No, no, it's it's, it's badly phrased. She's forbidden to be in, in, in there, but she's forbidden to be anywhere. I mean, th- well, that's, that's true. That's true. Point. true. It's, it's okay. Let's start off this book. You, you, the first thing I want to talk about is because you've touched on it already, Ian. This is a. A, a, an archaic format, you're right. This is a a fix-up novel, which I think came into existence in the, probably the 1950s when uh, authors were trying to find a way to fill the demand of the evolving book market with their short, the short fiction they'd written in years before. And that's that's where you see... It was in terms of Ave Vogt. Yeah, Ave and Vogt did it. And it then coined, went on to, coined by Ave and Vogt. Yeah. He actually came up with the term, I believe. And it was replaced much but, more yeah, because, euphoniously by Le Guin with Story Suite. Which I think is quite a bit different. I, 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 I don't think it's the same thing as a fix-up. A fix-up, uh, to some extent, was an attempt to knit together stories into something that looked like a novel. The first really famous one was probably the Martian Chronicles. Because the only place you could sell fiction, science fiction, in the 40s was in magazines. And so people tried to get together series, they put together the Foundation series, they put together the Martian series. A story suite, I think, is a separate kind of aesthetic construct where you set out to write stories that are linked together, but you don't even necessarily publish them separately. Uh, in, in, in mainstream fiction, Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio is, is a story suite in that sense because it's a collection of stories that deliberately were designed to be part of a, of a novel 
uh, overall. I'm not sure where Lavi fits in this because it's clear that he did some adjustments and rewriting and rearrangements and linkages uh, to make this look more like a novel than the original stories did. Yeah, I'm not sure either. That's my one. Bi- that's my one big question: Should he have bothered? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that the whole is more than the sum of its parts. I think that there are some... St- I mean, I, I guess what you do get when you when you put them together, and maybe just ma- putting the collection together, would have been sufficient without making changes to the stories. But the stronger stories, like, you know, that say Vladimir Ch- uh, Chong chooses to die, the bookseller, Strigoi, the smell of orange groves... They are they, they gain some added resonance, but the weaker, well, the lesser stories in the book actually do gain, I think, from context. So whether I mean you needed it to have been dovetailed, I mean, arguably my criticism of it would be I'm not sure that it's been dovetailed enough, uh, and by that I mean there is some repetition in the book that I might have edited out because it is now presented as a book rather than as a standalone piece of short fiction. I think it, I, th- I think the knitting the stories together improves them a lot because I had not read all of them, but I probably read more than half of them as separate stories. And I was outside of this general setting of of Central Station and some references to Mars and some references to the up and out. I hadn't made all the connections between the stories that are made very clear and at times really rather moving and rather touching mm. when you start seeing the resonances among the stories. And I, th- I think you really did fine tune the stories into something more than the sum of the parts. It's interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, I just I just wonder only because, you know, I, I, yeah, I did do a, for my sins, I looked through Goodreads, uh, which, and, and, and it's gone down very well, you know, not just from critics, but generally from the audience. But the con- there is that constant thing of, oh, I only just discovered that this is actually a bunch of short stories. That explains why there's no plot. So, which, is, which was, a, even of the people who liked the book, that was a, mm. not a critique, but just an observation. Oh, you know, because it's not sold as a, as a... Yes, if you go to the back of the book, you'll find that these stories appeared elsewhere. Well, not all of them, but uh, most of them. Um, but, it's, but, yeah, that, that feeling of, oh, well, that explains why there's no plot to this. It's, it's sort of just stuff. It's a travelogue. Stuff occurs to a whole mm. bunch of people who, who reappear in the story, reappear, but there's no, none of that sort of... The, the, none of that um, conventional plotting that you expect from a science fiction novel. I think the other thing that is perhaps missing, which would have made it stronger as much as I liked it, is that it doesn't have an overall arching narrative particularly, or enough of one, to well, really I think make it's the feel... Cranky. I think Cranky, oh, yeah, I think Cranky, the little kid, he's the overarching, you know, what's happening to these children, what, what will the next generation sure. bring? Yeah. I, think, I think it's all leading to that, but not in a way that you're right, not in a way that feels um, punched through the narrative. It's, 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 it's this underlying sense, but not, not, not a sure. major part. On the other hand, I guess, to talk up the approach that Levy has taken, the upside of it is you get to see a lot of different sides of Central Station, uh, a lot of different people, a lot of different kinds of things happening, in a way that if you were to try and sandwich them into a traditional novel narrative, would end up probably have taken, you know, five or six hundred pages, and a big sprawling kind of epic book, rather than a short, tight, tight contained book. And I think that's a real asset, a real plus. It's just that it'd be nice for people to realize that, you know, it was uh, stories we're dealing with. Gary? The other other thing he does, which is another another Cordwainer-Smith technique, uh, and which I'm actually kind of a sucker for, 
is he frames this as a series of legends of centuries earlier. Uh, he has this italicized passage at the beginning about how uh, you know these are the stories that uh, happened long ago and still we remember and we whisper to each other the old tales across here in our sojourn among the stars. That's a very Cordwainer Smith kind of thing. This is the future as remembered by the really distant future. And thus these stories are kind of given a, a kind of legendary uh, overtone that, as I say, may, may or may not be literarily very sophisticated, but I'm a sucker for it. No, that, that, that is one of the nice elements to it. And I think you're right, Gary, in that the, the stories bounce off each other. There is genuine resonance, you know. Um, I think, I think where he's, yes, there is repetition, but he's done, re- especially with the Chongs that, that found the Joneses, that they, they, there is sequential, there's a sequential nature to their narrative, their arcs, that things don't, um, they don't go backwards, they go forwards. And I think that those, the stories do ultimately start to bounce off each other in a way that is very uh, pleasing. So mm-hmm. uh, that's why I like the book so much. I think, I think he more or less pulls off the knitting together aspect. I, yeah, I think it could be more. But, um, yeah, I mean, because I suppose for, for Lava, you'd probably get to a point where if you're going to push it further, you might as well have just written a, a novel based in that world rather than knit a whole bunch of stories together. Yeah. I but I, 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 the last thing I would want to see is a 600-page epic of space exploration centered sure. around television. Well, I, Why? Centered, centered around Why? It, doesn't stop, it doesn't stop anyone else, Gary. <laughs> well, no. well, put it this way. I don't think that this needed it. I think the way that Levy has chosen to do it, uh, to tell it in a braided narrative across a, number, a series of stories works really nicely and it does build the world and i mean whilst yes he could have taken the moat and god's eye approach and written a written a big novel uh not doing so has its strengths as well it allows you to see just different angles and facets and to just focus on those without that larger heavier narrative i mean allowing that the central station stories themselves are only a subset of stories within an entire space opera universe that um tidhar has written that has another 30 stories in it, you know. I sometimes get the sense that Tidhar really wished he had had a career in the 40s pulp, so he could have written stories these, this way and, and linked them together and implied a much larger narrative, a much more epic narrative than is there. There's a phrase that I've always liked that I think was coined by the British critic Patrick Perinder, epic fables. And he was using, and Cordwainer Smith is a good example of that. He was talking about short stories which are related to each other which have enormous gaps between them, which the reader has to fill in. You have to realize, uh, for example, in Smith, you have to figure out what the instrumentality of man means. And you piece it together, you get clues in this story, clues in that story. And there's a, there's a story, there is an epic of space exploration in this, but it's one that the reader has to do a little bit of work to piece together. That's true. I mean, look, I think what I find interesting about this is, I think Tidhar, who I think is a very perceptive gifted, talented writer, tends to take outsider perspectives on what he's done. He's taken an outsider format, if you like, in science fiction by taking you know, the, 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 you know, the story suite, the, the fix-up novel, which, although it's been in the field for a long time, has never been really at the heart of the field, with possibly a brief window maybe in the late 40s, early 50s, when that might have been different. And then he, he's told it from a, a completely different kind of perspective and setting i mean after all all of the characters in this pretty much without exception are working class 
lower class, they're poor, they're not the rich and powerful. Uh, we're, we're seeing, if you like, the world from the bottom up. I mean, first of all, physically, I mean, we're at the, at, at the bottom of an enormous space elevator that goes up to a space station in orbit, looking up at it, dominated by it. And these are, the, the, you know, we are at, you know, in Central S- Station, which is, you know, the, what, the, built around the old Central Bus Station of Tel Aviv. Uh, and you mm-hmm. have people who are sort of, they've got small, small shops, small lives, all that kind of thing, but nonetheless are critical to the overall life of it. What I found immediately, <coughs> sorry, yeah? Oh, I, I, was, I was going to say that the, uh, uh, the other aspect of the, uh, of the, nor- of the novel, which, strikes me as being very contemporary is that a lot of the class distinctions that exist now in Israel, the, 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 the problems with people living in Jaffa, people living in wealthier areas, the, 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 Arab, uh, the Palestinian conflict, all the, the, the prehistory of Tel Aviv is crucial to, to the far future history we have. And it's interesting that he chose Tel Aviv, which is not one of the ancient uh, cities in, in in Israel. It's not Jerusalem. It, it, it's set it's set in a city which is built, but which by the time of this narrative is an ancient city. Oh yeah, but the, the choice of Tel Aviv makes sense if you consider Tel Aviv as as the melting pot of Israel in a sense. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that 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 makes sense. I suppose on that point, and so you didn't finish your point, Jonathan. So well, well I guess that, that I guess that, that's what I was trying to get to. Actually, was that he's chosen a location to set his story that Western science fiction traditionally has not in Tel Aviv in Israel. He has cast a lot of it from the perspective of Jewish characters in a world infused with Judaism. That itself itself seems like a really powerful thing to have done. And I'm really, I mean, it struck me and resonated with me, and I'm really curious, Ian, how you felt about that aspect of the book. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, the one thing that just bugged me a little bit, and it was a little bit, I promise, is he sort of, he doesn't, given given the, the, the that this is Israel, this is Israel of the future, the, the Haredi element, the ultra-Orthodox element, or just the Orthodox Jewish element versus the Chiloni element, which is the secularist side of Israel, is is not, that that's, that's a divide that's happening in Israel right now, and it's a major divide. That's a major issue. It always has been, and and you know, it's, it, it, there's a certain. I mean, there's certain passages to Orthodox Jews going off to shul for Shabbat. But I wanted more of that. I mean, it was interesting that that um, there's a bris, there's a circumcision in in the story performed by the, the robotic reverend, and uh, which would not be kosher because uh, putting aside the fact that he, that it is a robot. Um, and a Jew has to perform a bris, and I don't think you can convert a robot to Judaism. Maybe you can two hundred years from now. But, also, remember, um, it's, not, it's not a robot, hmm. though. Well, it's, it's a, a, well, it's it's a is, cyborg. Right? No, it's a cyborg. The robotics the, are the, robo- the robotics are no, not the robotics. No, 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 no. A Reverend Patchett is a robot. I think ro- I, oh, I, I yeah. he was one of the robotniks. No, no, he's not a robotnik. No, no, he's not a robot. Okay, Gary, yeah. would you like to arbitrate this? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I believe I believe he's a robot. I believe, and again, uh, it's a direct allusion to our Daniel Olivar from Asimov. I think he is an actual, my reading was that he was an actual robot, as opposed to the Robotniks who are kind of, uh, well, they're dead. They're, in a sense, they're cyborgized zombies. Mm. Yes, I, I, all, for me, for a book that is so good at being a travelogue and so good at being diverse, with so many, even though it's set in Israel, the cultures are not just 
Jews and 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 Arabs. It's 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 far wider and far more interesting than that. Mm-hmm. I would have personally just been interested to see what what happened to the what 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 how did the Haredi how does that Orthodox or ultra Orthodox aspect of Judaism slot, fit into this society? How, how does it work if it, if it, if at all? And that's all. I mean, it's it's one of those quibbles where it's not the book. It's not the book that was presented. It's the book I'd like to have seen, but that's okay. not Lavi's problem. That's more my uh, my issue. But overall, though, having said all that, it does fi- look. I, I'm I'm one of those horrible Jews who's only been to Israel once in my life. So uh, so to say, for me to stand here and say, oh, well, it, it 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 screams Israel. You know, it it feels Israel is is, is bullshit. I mean, I family there, whatever, but. You know, um, I, I've only been, and the, the winner was was shit. It was fifteen years ago, more than that. So it's very hard for me to stand here and say that this evokes Israel to me because I, I myself, am an Australian and have only been there once. I mean, it, might, it may as well have been, in a sense, for me personally as a Jew, it could have been sent in Rome from that sense of evoking a place that I'm familiar with, if that makes sense. Okay, you say that, but how important, how valuable is it to have a a science fiction adventure novel. I mean, yes, it's about n- not necessarily about big spaceships fighting, though. There is that stuff elsewhere in this universe because I've seen those stories. How valuable is it to have a science fiction story where Judaism and Israel and Tel Aviv are at the forefront without it ever being made a thing about? No, that is great. That's fantastic. You know. That is fantastic. But there comes down to the question of what is actually Judaism? Yeah. This book isn't here to answer that question. But what is it in terms is it a is it a culture, is it a is it a people, is it a religious observance? What is it? And and this book this book doesn't go doesn't uh, even attempt to answer that, and neither should it. But it, so for me to turn around and say, Yes, I feel that Jewish link in here, I, look, I do, because, you know, the, 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 the Altazacher man, the Sundak for uh, for the Bruce, you know, you, you, you get lots of, you know, battle Yiddish is brilliant. I love the idea of battle Yiddish. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, you could, I couldn't think of anything more ridiculous than the idea of an old language, an old <laughs> a European Jewish hybrid language being used for war. I mean, it, it's just this beautiful idea. You see, yeah, it, I get those, those little tingles, those little thrills are there, but... You wanted more. Do, do I get an overall Jewish sense? Not so much, but that's not a problem with the book. It's, it's again. I, maybe if I lived and breathed in Israel itself, I'd be a lot more tied into it. And but going back to your point, Jonathan, yes, I think it is important that yeah, it's not made a big deal of. And there's this. And, and just putting aside Israel, setting it in a place that isn't Europe and or America. Mm. Uh, and or third, mm. uh, first world country sitting sitting in, in a place that is different that we know has, suffers turmoil and all sorts of issues and and presenting it in a way that while yes you said uh, as you've said it's a working class etc there's still that sense of hope about the place oh yeah there's a sense of progression a sense of optimism not not for everyone but there's that that forward movement i mean yes we've got the robotics who are the leftovers from a war there's it's not all good but there but clearly as gary said we were told this is the beginning of something better possibly and we do get some sense of the past with i think especially the the, the chapter involving the bookseller whose name i don't remember offhand who who's not connected to the node who has customers that come in he seems like a figure out of he could have been a figure in an isaac Bashevis singer story he's a preserver of the past, a preserver of tradition, a, a protector of books. He's a kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? 
Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily represent traditional um, Jewish yeah. war. You mean you mean Akim Winner? Akim Winner. Yes, that's Winner. That's yeah. who it is. Um, and I think he was a wonderful character. Yeah, he's 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 my favorite character in the whole book, mm-hmm. uh, and probably because I love books, and I think anyone who loves books will love. Uh, and uh, and he's. <laughs> His absolute uh, obsession for old Israeli pulp books, which is Lavi's obsession, clearly, of based on the podcast you had with him, um, <laughs> is, is, it just comes out, that passion just comes out so clearly. And so, you know, it's so, so wonderful. I guess what, what, what I found really attractive as well is in, this, in a time when our field is talking so much about inclusion, for a Israeli man, which he is, to write a American-style science fiction book and story set in a non-Golden Age kind of setting and to carry it off as though it was just no big deal. I mean, as far as I can tell, and it doesn't matter, there's not a single Caucasian in this book. I th- yes, I think that's a pretty... Yeah, that, that sounds about right. You know? And, I mean, it, it is utterly irrelevant that there is or isn't, but it seems to say a lot about the attempts at inclusion and what it means. I mean, because, after all, one of the ironies of the whole idea of inclusion is we're talking about inc- including for a fiction, uh, for, a, for a literature that we mostly see as coming from North America and maybe the United Kingdom, including the rest of the world, the actual large part of it. And here's this that's sort of saying, well, hang on, we've taken your material and done, our th- done this with it, and this is what the world could see. And I think that's really valuable and important, and probably as valuable as anything about it, and I'd be curious about your thoughts on this, is that it's never the, never the thing. I never felt, while reading these stories, that the point of this was to say, hey, look, it's set in Tel Aviv. Hey, look, they are Jewish, and those guys over there are not Jewish, and there's this, it was just, here's the life as it is in this place at this time. Yes, and, and, and yes, that is the best bit about it, and all my quibbles before possibly would have ruined that. If, if it had been a bigger exploration of Jewish culture plus 200 years, that could have upset what is fantastic about the book, which is its inclusivity and diversity and the fact that, you know, this is... And that, as you said, not a big deal is made of it. That's the setting. That's where we are, and this is what's going on. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. It is the strength of the book. I also wonder if anybody else could possibly have written it because if you think about it, you need someone who has totally absorbed golden age science fiction and its antecedents but who also has a a deep enough familiarity with the area they're talking about to never be tokenistic about it just to express it as a natural combination of the two i think part of that's the natural it it, it has to do with i'm sure it has to do with i've talked to a lot of you about this about you know you're growing up in a kibbutz and you're reading American science fiction novels. These are the two uh, points of reference from which your fiction is going to derive. And all of his fiction is derived from that to some extent. I think the, the violent century partly derives from his interest in comic books and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, A Man Lies Dreaming, the same thing is going on in there. The same thing uh, goes on in Martian Sands. That uh, to some extent, he has no choice. That is, as you said earlier the environment he, he grew up in. I don't think he wants to call attention to it. I don't think he wants to, um, you know, make something called Jews in space. Um, as a matter of fact, it reminded me a little bit when you were talking about the de-emphasizing of a, of a decision that Michael Chabon made when he wrote his novella, um, Gentleman of the Road, which is kind of a Fawford and the Grey Mouser 
adventure, it's not science fiction, but his original title, as I understand, was Jews with Swords, and he thought, no, I don't want to do that, I want to write an adventure story without calling too much attention to this. Well, well don't, forget think, that, don't forget that Levy's a man who edited a book called Jews vs. Zombies. Well, that's true. <laughs> but he has no problem with, 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 with the most extreme versions of pulp. I, I, I think that's one of the things that I admire about him. He has uh, no embarrassment over any of his passions, and, uh, and they come out in his fiction, and they make me want to know who some of these obscure uh, 50s uh, Israeli pulp writers that he, apparently only he has read um, of, of people that I would know. I, I want to know what's in them. I, I got a sense of what was in them in reading Osama, because Osama, of course, is a, is a novel within a pulp novel. And he's a terrific book. I love Osama. I love Martian Sands as well. I've got to say, he's he's not only is he well read, but he's well travelled. Which, if you know, if you read anything on his Twitter account right. or whatever, so that that idea of being well travelled. So it's not a he's. I mean, you know, I've lived Australia for ninety nine point nine percent of my life. Love, he's moved around the world. So, and I think that also comes out in a book like this. There's a feeling of someone who 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 does have an eye for other other people, other cultures, because he's to an extent lived in those places, or or you know, just has an appreciation of a wider world. And uh, and I just want and just one other thing because we've spoken a lot about Golden Age SF and for good reason. What's brilliant about this book? What makes it so special for me personally is that it is so well written from a contemporary mm. sense. This isn't someone aping a style from the 1950s. It may reference it through Easter eggs. It may be a fix-up novel, but the actual text, the actual prose, is contemporary and contemporary in a way that. And I don't. This is always a, a, a bad thing to do, but in a literary sense, you know, in a sense that there's a poetry to the to the tone at times. It's um, prosaic. Yeah. It's, it's it's got all those things that I personally look for in fiction these days, whether it's genre or non-genre. It, it just it has all that. So, th- what where the genius lies is the ability to is to hark back to the old days, talk about a future that is coming, and do it in a way that is still fresh. is still fresh and contemporary. Lovey is rare in the whole field. Yeah, oh yeah. Name me someone who is who is able to do that. I I actually, it's I struggle to think of yeah. anyone who can do who, who could be so steeped in it and yet not feel the need to ape it in style. Style. I think it's that. But I'm just going to say I'm very glad you mentioned that, Ian, because I was going to bring it up bring it up later if nobody else did. Which is that and I've read most of Lovey's work, and this is the most lyrical writing I've seen from him. There's just an absolute uh, gracefulness and beauty to the prose, which he doesn't always seem to take that much care with in his longer fictions. Maybe that's because these were originally short stories. They, he spent some time revising them. I'm sure he revised them again for the book. But there's some really gorgeous prose in this book. Do you think it's that, or do you think it's because of the influence quite deliberately that he is echoing of Cordwainer Smith, that same attempt for a prose poetry kind of thing to what he's doing? Um, there's some of that, but it's not, uh, to, to quote what Ian just said, it's not aping chord wingers. No, no a, I'm not saying that at it, all. But It's a very mainstream kind of... He, the, the narrative, the frame narrative, is very chord Smith, and there are rel- the references to chord Smith. But story by story, the opening story could almost be a mainstream story. A woman go- going to t- take this kid to see if his dad is coming back you know, on a spaceship. Um, there's a very domestic uh, grace and quietness about some of the narratives that are that, that, that contrast radically, let's say, with the 
uh, over-the-top uh, violence of some of the scenes in the violent century. I mean, I'm, I'm reading the Man Booker long list at the moment. I'm two-thirds of the way through it. And this, look, uh, there's reasons why this wouldn't slot in, but it's a, it's, it's a, from a prose perspective, it's right up there. Mm-hmm. It, it, it would not look out of place at all from from a, from a sentence to sentence level, and that's assuming that, and that that has a whole lot of prejudice behind what I've just said because that assumes that books nominated for a man Booker are a priori better written than books nominated for let's say Hugo or Nebula because genre writers are uh, you know on the face of it just uh, you know hacks knocking out novels whereas. <laughs> A man Booker nominee is someone who's uh, you know slave slaves yeah. away on every sentence, and I, and yes, I know how that sounds, but how that and I, but still, I, I actually sort of half believe that anyway. And number two, um, there is a, there is an elevation to love his prose, at least in this book, and I, and I actually think the same for Martian Stands and Osama. There's an elevation to his prose that is different to what you get from uh, genre as a whole. Which I know, huge generalisation, but you know it's a it podcast. Is a, it is a huge generalisation. Generalisation. This is as good a place to do that as anywhere. I think there are there are a number of writers who are wonderful prose stylists. I think in this particular work, he's taken a great deal of care with the prose to make the whole book flow, to give it resonance, mm-hmm. to give it that kind of semi mythic tone in places, which I think suits the stories he's telling. What impresses me more than anything, having sat not a week and a half or two weeks ago on a panel at the World Science Fiction Convention talking about whether there's still enough risk-taking in science fiction or whether people feel too inhibited is that Tidhar is pretty much a a completely fearless, risk-taking kind of writer. I mean, if you look at his other books, if you look at A Man Lies Dreaming, if you look at, you know, uh, Osama, if you look at whatever else, he takes risks. And even here, in a sense, you know, he, he is doing that. He's telling the story he wants to, irrespective. I doubt this could have been published without being a major deal 40, you know, 30 years ago, that you would just seamlessly set something in Tel Aviv from, with a Jewish background and all those sorts of things. I think it would have been much more controversial. I think you would have had people saying, well, where is the white perspective in this book where it doesn't belong, you know? So yeah. I think that's that's a really powerful aspect of the book that needs. Yeah, to look, you're right, and you're right. I have I have generalised. I have generalised. I mean, we we our very first podcast was about Adam Roberts, who fits the bill, and, and I'm going to quote another guy as well. So I'm sorry, I'm only looking at many, but Adam Roberts being one, and 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 a book that we haven't discussed, but is a fantastic novel. And if it's not on awards next year, then there's something fundamentally wrong somewhere. And that's Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country, which yeah. and, and in in both cases. These are writers who are clearly steeped in, in all three cases, clearly steeped mm-hmm. in the genre, but have an ability to elevate that beyond just an aping or just a, yeah, look how smart I am. And, um, I mean, which is why Adam Roberts, and it's completely off topic, but Adam Roberts' re- recent blog post is upsetting because yes. this idea that you sort of can't write that way anymore because there's maybe not a market for it. Not the conversation for now, but... The, so, yes, it was a generalisation. There are other writers out there. But, look, I was just so impressed by the prose, putting aside the gazillion ideas that are already in this novel. I mean, we haven't even mm-hmm. touched the surface of how many just disparate ideas are in here around. I mean, Weiwei's cursed. I mean, how, how horrible. Well, Weiwei's yes. folly, sorry. This, 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 just this wonderful idea that runs through this book, and it's a horrible one, yes. of, 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 of a man who wants to keep his uh, legacy alive by forcing future generations to remember everything he's ever done. 
Yes. And, and, then, and then it just follows on. Yep. Each generation remembers and it causes degenerative problems. I mean, what, what, how fucked up is that? And, and yet you're brilliant. You, and, no, no, it is fucked up but brilliant. And then you, know, you contrast that with the sensitivity that you find in the bookseller where you get this outsider, almost loveless you know, character who meets this woman that he plainly falls for. And is very tender to me. Everything about that story, mm -hmm. uh, or that section of the book, is gentle and tender. The smell of oranges, which is the bit you're talking about with uh, Weiwei, is more hubristic, if you like. More um, forward-looking. And yet, somehow, you know, it becomes this curse. So by the time you get to the one story, actually, in here, that was ironically published in Analog, and it feels ironic that it was published in Analog, is the story of his grandson choosing to kill himself because he has been overwhelmed by his grandfather's memories. How good yeah. is the ending to that story? Oh, it's brilliant. The, the roller coaster of doom. Yeah, yeah. that oh, is actually... Yeah. And yet, those are ideas, those are moments that derive from the science fictionality of the story. In other words, he sets up a situation that leads to a kind of tragedy that could only be imagined in a science fiction context. So it, it, it's fitting with the overall, uh, you know, imagination of work in the book. I think in, in, in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's a gorgeous and risk-taking book. In another sense, it's the least risk-taking book that he's done in the, in the last several years. He, he, he's, he's not going to uh, deal with Osama bin Laden. He's not going to deal with the issue of terrorism. He's not going to have, you know, Hitler as a private eye in 1939 London. All these are things that actually I talked to him about Man Lies Dreaming, and he thought maybe he was the only writer who could even get away with trying something like that. These stories are not trans—they're not deliberately transgressive in the way that some of his novels have been. They are sort of gem-like. They're, they're more polished. They're more. Um, yeah, but I mean, uh, I agree with you to a point. I think they're—they're they're not as overtly transgressive. I think they're subtly transgressive. Um, oh yeah, and I think that transgression is actually in some ways more effective because you're less aware of it you know by the setting yeah i mean like when you normalize something uh that has been outside of the discussion of the field that's far more transgressive in some way than doing something really obvious i mean like when you do adolf hitler pi right that's really yeah. obviously challenging and in your face and kind of difficult for people. Yeah, it is. This isn't. This is kind of, well, we've absorbed it, we've integrated it, and we've presented it. And it's only after a while you start going, well, hang on a minute. I'm kind of attracted to this this different culture that I'm reading about, this different world, this, along with all of the additional science fictional elements, and, wanting to, and, and you're absorbing a different perspective without it ever being rammed down your throat. It's a really smart, subtle thing that he's done. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, it, it, it does raise an issue when we look at the, the growing multiculturalism of science fiction, and we've talked about, at least Jonathan, you and I have talked about this before on the podcast, when you look at a number of writers, uh, Nnedi Okorafor being another one coming from a Nigerian family, uh, that still, when you have these novels set in different cultures, it, 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 and Sujin Lu's The Three-Body Problem, uh, all of these writers still are ones who grew up absorbing a great deal of American science fiction, and all of this fiction that we're talking about is still, in some sense, in dialogue with classic American and possibly Anglo-American science fiction, which is not necessarily a bad thing, because I think that's kind of where the vocabulary of the genre grew up in the 40s and 50s. But it's very interesting to see that um, 
that this is still the dialogue that happens no matter what culture you're you're writing from. Yeah, that, I think that's true. Yeah, very much so. I mean, while while Gary was speaking, uh, I I uh, I was half listening as I, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's something you do. Is that, that? But Gary's used to that with you, Jonathan. So, Sorry, no, did you say something? Um, <laughs> no, well, I was just. I, I realised that I just, you know, because I made my generalisation fifteen minutes ago about how basically science fiction writers in the field produce hack work. Um, I and I came up with two examples, two that I've just thought of right now, uh, and a book that I hope we do next month. Not not to set it up is Claire North, yep. who, who who's writing amazing stuff, and um, I actually think. N.K. Jemison has taken her work to the next level. The fifth season, and I haven't read The Obelisk Gate yet, but that's another writer. I know this is a lovey Tidar podcast, but I'm just saying that I just I just didn't want everyone to think that I'm fully generalising about all all genre people. No, no, but no. It's, no, it's, no. it's only because you don't. It's 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 only because you don't edit, Jonathan. I felt I had to throw that in there. Fair that's enough. Because <laughs> Kirsten would have just taken it out. You see, Kirsten's very good at that. Look, I'm happy to hand this recording over to Kristen. She can edit it if you can persuade her. No, she'll kill me. I know no, she'll no, do. do that. Kill you dead. I know, kill you deadly. Actually, I was going to say, get, oddly... Get, get, yep, sorry. <laughs> I'm probably the only person who will ever say this. You know the book that this reminded me of more than anything else? Rhinoceros by Terry Dowling. So I've never read Dowling. That's, that's terrible to say, isn't it, as an Australian? No, no. I mean, because there's the pro-Smith... Uh, element to it there is the um yes. the strong cordwain of smith influence on it there is the outsider perspective there's the presenting of another culture um there's the same a similarity of tone to some of the stories and to the way that myth is evoked that really echoed that first book of dowlings to me quite strongly um and i could see it as being I mean, if you, if you picture them both as being story cycles or fix-up novels, which they both are, uh, set in mm. non-North American, non-traditional science fiction settings, which they both are, uh, incorporating some similar influences, there really are echoes. I mean, I think the, um, the Tidhar book is more refreshing in some ways, and I think it's more attractive to me because it's not as focused on a single character and group of actions the way the the dowling book is it's very much the story of tom tyson and his 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 uh, craft but there are nonetheless quite interesting echoes and i can't immediately think of a third or fourth book that belongs in that group that brings in other perspectives from north america itself it's almost like you can't get outside of it to tell it I mean, it, th there may yeah. be so there may be something, but I can't quite imagine or or you know, recall what it might be. Can you think of anything other in the same same kind of space, Gary? Well, not necessarily in the same kind of space as being non-Western, but in terms of dealing with a, a a kind of different culture from what we're familiar with in a series of link stories that resonate with one another. Uh, the first thing that came to mind while you were talking was was Nina Allen's The Race, which really is a group of stories. Uh, it is a novel, uh, but now it's been published in, in, uh, with some additional novella added at the end. And it's it's in a dying uh, you know, former resort town that's been fracked to death in, in, in rural England. Mm. So there is very much the class awareness is there, the, the awareness that you know we are trying to survive in a in a culture which, in some ways, has moved beyond us, which goes back to, for example, the the, the bookseller in Tadar. So there are similar characters in that. There are similar concerns. And there's a similar 
linkage of you know minor characters in one story becoming a major character in another story. Alan actually takes it a step further, as does Chris Priest, for that matter, and that some of these characters, some of these stories are actually stories written by characters in other stories, which even complicates it further. But that that novel struck me as being a very weirdly non-Western novel, both in its structure and in the fact that it takes place in a declining industrial town. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I should have mentioned Nina Allen, who's also fantastic. Um, but yeah, no, no, in terms of a... But I, I, I yeah, I, that is a great... That is The Race is a great book, and I haven't read the novella because I read the original uh, New Conquest mm. edition. Um, but, yeah, if, I, don't, I don't know if it's the same as... Not that I've read Terry Dowling, but I don't know if it's the same as what you've just described, no. Jonathan. Yeah, uh, partly because because Alan is see. The, I mean, as as we've said here, this is actually a straight narrative. Yeah, even though it may not have a strong plot, the the Lovey, yeah. Lovey's book is a straight narrative. The, the, he's not it doing the meta stuff which Alan yeah, is. Yeah, he's not doing metafictional games at all with it, uh, unless unless we all miss something because he might be. For all I know. Well, the, well, he's doing one big metafictional game in that he's saying, "Hey, it was a big. There's a lot of uh, Golden Age SF out there, and I've read it all." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, the, the the other writer which uh, Jonathan alluded to earlier that that sort of haunts this in a weird way is Clifford Simak because the structure of Simak's city, which was one of the classic fix-ups that came up in the early fifties, uh, also had these uh, a very kind of flimsy connection between. Uh, a group of very famous stories uh, individually that uh, that dealt with um, with deurbanization, and to some extent, there's a uh, there's a theme there that seems to be echoed, and I'm sure that Senac is part of uh, part of Tidar's DNA as well. Tidar's actually expressly said so. In fact, he's expressly said that when you come to the five books that influenced this cycle of stories the most, Simak's uh, Project Pope was one of the seminal books. That oh, yeah. uh, Zena Henderson's uh, you know, series of stories, um, in Australia, the Seal Moore stuff, and something else. So, mm-hmm. oh, you know, you know, if, if we were as much as I love Nina, Nina Allen, if I had to replace someone, at, I'd repl- think think of someone. Lisa Hennett's Lament for the Afterlife. Yeah. I don't know if either of you have read it. No, no. Uh, does a very similar thing to this book in that it is a genuine mosaic or story suite. There are characters that pop in, pop out. It's set in a place that well, we're actually not entirely sure where it is. It's some place, and th- that's probably one of the big differences. In that, it's very concrete as to where Love is setting his story. It's not so much with Lisa, but but she's also taken that risk of not keep of, of, of playing around with um, with characters and having them pop in, pop out, being a bit ambiguous at times. But again, I, look, I'm not going to say that that. That Larvey's book evoked lament for the afterlife. I was just if we were thinking of people who were who were doing similar stuff, that's one that I'd mention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this book could have been published forty years ago? Not not in the same time. Not not in the same. Yes, but it wouldn't have written be written the same way. Okay. Uh, well, could yeah, could it could it have been published? Yes, could it have been written? No, uh, which kind of is completely contradictory as an answer, but. Uh, one of the things it's not only a fix-up, but it, you know, he—he—it he, comes out to 250 pages. It's about the length of a 1950s paperback. So, in terms of its uh, overall format and design, the fact that there are a lot of solid science fiction ideas in it, uh, it 
it does have large, maybe this is part of the appeal of it to me, it did have largely the flavor of those old Senac collections, and it's much better written than Asimov's uh, stuff was at that point. But, but with yeah, Cordwainer Smith and Simak, sorry to interrupt Gary, but did, are they okay. writing about white people or are they writing about different cultures? Because I'm not read either. Again, see, I'm not conversant, as I said at the start. Simak is writing about, well, Simak is partly writing about white people, but he's partly writing about dogs and ants, too. Because okay, was, good. Very nice. Uh, Cordwainer Smith? Cordwainer Smith, um, well, his writing about people... He's writing about humans and intelligences, but they're all strange and twisted. Well, except except there are under people. There are major characters. His major romantic figure in all the stories is Kamal, who is a cat re-engineered to be like a human. Um, and there are some very powerful stories. A planet named Shale is one of them, in which he talks about the plight of the under people, meaning essentially redesigned. Uh, jumped up animals turned in, in, into humans but are never given the rights of humans. Um, and his, his one tragic romance, The Ballad of Lost Kamel, is about a human overlord, a lord of the instrumentality falling in love with a cat woman, uh, who is named, by the way, after Paul Weinberger's cat Melanie. That's stuff I didn't know. <laughs> that's uh, more probably than I needed to know but there you go let me ask you guys this did you enjoy reading this oh absolutely yes absolutely yeah would you recommend it strongly to our listeners if they've been mad enough to have listened to this podcast this far and have not actually already read it uh, uh, yes and, and I'll say that given that there's so little plot we haven't really spoiled anything and, and there's still ideas that we haven't even touched on like the uh, uh, virtual reality worlds and all this sort of stuff. And, and even the, just the basic, the concept of the conversation, which we haven't really even touched upon. Not that we should right now, but I'm just saying that there's plenty... No. In a book so short, there's plenty to plumb. I, no, I think we should mention it for no other reason. The, the conversation is this sort of ongoing and sort of internet in your brain if you have this note implanted, you're part of the conversation. And I wondered about this when I was reading it because... I know we've talked on the podcast, a lot of people have talked about the conversation that is science fiction. And I wonder if, if, if Tidar, to some extent, was alluding to that as well. Because the conversation implies not just a worldwide web of nodes, but it implies a kind of set of literary traditions, which I think he's always been very conscious of. Yeah. That sounds plausible to me, definitely. Can I just say one thing? Yep. You said this had been written 40 years ago. I was one. Yes, it might have been, but this is my this is my great revelation. Um, but it would have been written by someone like George Alec Effinger, and forty years later would probably smack a little bit of cultural appropriation. Yeah, that's um, as plausible to me. And, and I love Effinger. I think George Alec Effinger is one of those authors who's probably going to get forgotten over time. I mean, very rarely gets spoken of. Um, great writer, but that's that's who I think would have written a sort of book like this. I know we're in the end stretch of this conversation, but I kind of want to open it up just a little bit to, to, to both go back to a point touched on earlier and maybe expand on it a bit in the light of this book. Do you both think, and maybe start with you, Ian, uh, that we still are in a time when there is genuine risk-taking possible and happening in science fiction, or is it an innately conservative time? Oh, I think the second Really? And I, and I say, yeah, I, it, well, I think Lavi is an outlier. I think, and I, do, I mentioned Adam Roberts's post before, which depressed me no end. Um, 
and I think if I look at just even the the Clark Award nominees for this year, um, I sort of see that there's there's not much risk being taken. There's nothing that's particularly ambitious in those books. Hmm. Gary, my sense is that there are risk takers, but there aren't risk takers in the market. There aren't risk takers buying and publishing novels in the way they used to. And I think that's partly what uh, Adam Roberts's concern is. It's partly the concern that we've talked about on our podcast about uh, uh, major British writers not even getting published in the United States. So I think there's pressure on writers not to be too risk-taking because there is a sense in the market that uh, that's not necessarily what's going to get rewarded. On the other hand, you have Nora Jemison winning a Hugo Award this year for, for a book which is, as far as I can tell, not having read it yet, uh, a departure from her earlier uh, novels and, and, and something of a risk. Yeah, it, it is. And it, it, yes, that, that gives me hope because that structurally it's very smart. It, I've not read anything recently that is as smart, structurally as smart. And yes, it, it does play, uh, you know... It, Look, it's got unsympathetic characters and things like that, but but it, it, it's it's just very, it's just intelligent, it's highly intelligent, and yeah, right. there are elements of risk to it, especially the structure, is is because the structure could have been off-putting for a lot of readers uh, if they weren't willing to persevere. And although I thought it was the thing that that absolutely gripped me from page one, um, so yeah, there, there are there are glimmers in the midst, and yes, the fact that she's won a, a Hugo is 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 what's is great, but I still go by my previous answer. I got to tell you, I, I'm living in a different world from you two guys. All right, fine, good. And, and I'll tell you why. Uh, without being Pollyannish about about it, one of the major science fiction novels of 2015 was about how one of the major uh, dreams of science fiction was impossible. Uh, when you talk about Nora Jemison, who is to be applauded and who is terrific, she's really commercially successful as well. You know, so, I mean, she, she's taking risks and she's being commercially rewarded. Uh, Nadia Korfor is taking risks and being commercially rewarded. For all that I empathize with Adam Roberts and what, how he's feeling about his work, he's 16 books into a career, right? And he's been allowed to write pretty much from the sounds of it, whatever he was willing to. You know, and maybe it hasn't got all the kind of recognition that he would like it to get, and that maybe I would like it to get, and maybe we believe it deserves. But nonetheless, it has been to a degree successful and read and discussed. So, I mean, I'm not really sure that I'm as convinced that risk-taking isn't taking place, that risk-taking can't find an audience, and that risk-taking can't be successful. You know, um... I appreciate that there is an overwhelming tsunami of mediocrity out there, and that tends to obscure our vision of the risk takers in the field. But I'm not necessarily completely convinced that there was a time in our field when there was any more risk taking being taken any more successfully. Even if you look back at times like the 1960s and the new wave. Yeah, but here's the thing, Jonathan. When I say risk-taking, I look like the, the sudden appearance of hope by Clear North is a fantastic book. But structurally, it's uh, not taking risks in the same sense that are uh, outlined by Rachel Cusk or Ali Smith's uh, books. And I'm talking literary writers here, but take risks by, for example, not having definable pr protagonists or you know doing all sorts of things that are just not that are genuinely ambitious and risky in the sense that people will pick up, read page one and go, I do not know what's going on. I'm throwing this book away. This is rubbish. You know, and, and that's in fact the reaction you get from some of these. 
Uh, and that's how I define risk. Now, but, but that, that, that's structural technique. No, I'm yeah. gonna, but, but John, okay. you mentioned you, you mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora, which does challenge one of the cherished beliefs of science fiction, but in other ways is not a risk-taking book. Sure, it's it's not a risk-taking book until you realize what's happening in it. But other than that, it's a Kim Stanley Robinson novel. It's very literate. It's very competent. It's it's, it's an excellent novel in in, in every way, but it's only challenging uh, science fiction readers on one of their myths. It's not something that, as Ian said, would make you put it aside and say, I don't think I want to finish this. Let me, let me reverse the question and ask you, Jonathan, would Dahlgren get published today? Hmm. Actually, yeah, I think Goodbye. it would be. Yeah, I think it probably would. Uh, now, you might ask, who by? It's entirely possible that instead of selling hundreds of thousands of copies from Bantam, Dahlgren would have been published by PS Publishing in an edition of 500 copies. Well. So, yeah, that does ma make the, the opposite argument, I suppose. I, I don't think it's, it's, it's neatly, simplistically kind of synopsized. I think there is risk-taking work out there. No, look, you're right. So I know where my tastes are moving towards. And, and frankly, and it's not just about risk-taking meaning and penetrable work that you no. can't possibly appreciate. Mm. We're not talking about the next Finnegan's Wake, but we're talking about people who are authors who are willing to, you know, um, and you said, well, you picked on, you said, so well, structurally, yes, there are things that I'm pointing on structurally, but even just on base content, on plots that, which is where this book, Larvi's book, just to get back to the topic, um, yeah. has is risk-taking that it doesn't have a plot, frankly. And, yeah. and for a book that's been sold to science right. fiction, which is why people on Goodreads said I couldn't read it, some said, I couldn't read this because there's no plot. And and that, to me, is a risk. Because that, that immediately pushes people away. And it's primarily about relationships rather than anything else. Correct. Mm. And it's short. That's right. And it's episodic. And, and well, it's interesting. People part. said, I finished it because it was short, but it's got no plot and I didn't like it. So, <laughs> you know... <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. So that, so this is taking it, a risk. This it, book. It's worth noting parenthetically that it comes out from a small press, which does do some risk taking work, but nevertheless, it's still a small press. Tachyon. I think that's true, though. I think, in fairness to Tachyon, they're more these days an independent publisher. They do publish books that sell in the tens of thousands. Well, that's true. So that's not sort of quite the same as, with all respect and affection to PS Publishing, a publisher that typically produces five hundred copies and then goes out of print. So, but you know what? I think probably we're, we're at, at, at the end of an hour, and that's usually where we wind this up. So maybe I would conclude by saying, from my perspective, this is one of the best books of the year for me. I don't know exactly what award it's going to be eligible for next year. I think it belongs on awards ballots, but I'm not sure which ones it can, can, can end up on. It's a terrific book. It'll be book. interesting to see. If that's a good question. Will it be categorized as a novel or a story collection? Probably a collection, but we'll see. Mm. And what do you think, Ian? Uh, as in w w what awards it might yeah. appear on? Yeah. I hope it isn't categorised as a collection because the effort's been made not to... Because otherwise he would have just published a lot of short stories. That, I hope that's not what people do. Well, what judges do, I'm thinking of the curated awards here, uh, because uh, I think that would be wrong, personally. But that's my view. But, yeah, I think this is one of the best books I've read for the year. Um but yeah, look, I highly recommend it. It's it's <laughs> it's just fantastic. It really is. Yeah, and I don't know what Levy's doing next, but I certainly will be will be looking out for it. He's written more Jewish science fiction for me over at Tor.com. 
about uh -huh. about enormous Jewish religious states invading other universes, but that's a whole other thing. I said, okay, well, that's the, to uh, me, that's that's just a, that's great. That's got a, is that is that a tour novella? Okay. No, no, that's that's just a short story that's coming up. Oh well, yeah, fantastic. In, in, a, in a new semi-related universe, so yeah, to, to this, he, he, he's just a hell of a talent and, and insanely prolific. I hope he continues. So anyway, on that note. Thank you, Gary, for making the time to come join us on the roundtable this month. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you, Ian, for being available to, to discuss this. We'll be back next month uh, with James, maybe with Gary, we'll see, talking about Claire North's book, The Sudden Appearance of Hope, is it? Oh, that's what I hope, because that's what I read. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that, not, that it was, not that it wasn't a pleasure to read it. I, I'm spoiler, but I love it. But, uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that sounded horrible. Um, and you don't hit it. That's the problem. Yeah, and I will well, and I'll problem, ensure to make now. more generalizations <laughs> next month. Okay. I'm, I'm it's, a, it's, it's, it's an interesting novel in that the title sounds like a mainstream novel until you realize there's a character named Hope in which that makes it a science fiction title. Yeah, exactly. Well, well let, let's not get too far ahead of things. We will, we will be back next month. Uh, and until now, this has been the Cood Street Roundtable. <laughs>